This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be shamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible Line. So pleased that you can be with us. And for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. Uh, maybe there's an issue that you're facing in your personal life, or there's a text of Scripture you're wrestling with, or you're looking for biblical insight as to how to live out your Christian life. Well, if we can be of help, we will direct you towards the Scriptures and do our best by the grace of God to uh, share what His Word says. Again, the local 843 South Carolina Exchange is 525-1859, 525-1859. In addition, we have a toll-free 877 number, and it's the call letters, WAGP, followed by 980-877-WAGP-980. Or you can text us here directly into the studio, and the uh, text address is tbl at WAGP.net. It's actually an email, tbl at WAGP.net. We receive a lot of questions that way as well. We do give preference to live callers. Uh, You may call and want to simply dictate your question, and you're welcome to to do that, or you can go on the air live. We have Walt with us today helping us and here with Rick uh, training him, and we're glad to have him on board this morning. Good morning, Walt. Good to have you. Thank you, Pastor Carl. Happy to be here. All right, I think we have some questions that have come in, so let's go ahead and we'll get started. Very well. Uh, the first question is a live caller that called in. Um, how do you go about defending a pro-life position when a friend brings up in the Bible that the Israelites killed children when conquering Canaan or David's child dying as a punishment from his sin with Bathsheba? Okay, it's a great question. So um, let me just say a couple things. Uh, God, in on a couple of occasions, they're called the imprecatory Psalms, gave some very, very stiff penalties to the Canaanites. And uh, he basically said, go in and take them all out. Now, that may seem incredibly harsh, but it's actually pro-life. It's unique. Remember, Israel is a theocracy. There's no such theocracies today where we would follow such commands Uh, A theocracy is where the Lord God personally, over the people of Israel, supervised the nation and dealt with them accordingly. And the purpose, of course, was to bring the Savior of the world, the Messiah. And so even when God met Abraham and he established the Abrahamic covenant, uh, it's a unique covenant with Israel alone. He put Abraham to sleep, and typically when you cut animals in half and you walked a through the animals, you basically said, you can do to me uh, what we just did to these animals if I am not faithful and true to what God's Word says. And so God said to him, now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. His name was not yet Abraham. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, 
know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. And then he goes on, he continues, and, and then he says, then in the fourth generation, they will return, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So the Amorites, one aspect of Canaanites in the land, people who lived in the land of Canaan, as it was called, um, the iniquity was not yet complete. In other words, God was long-suffering. He was waiting, giving every possibility for these people to repent. How bad were they? They were bad beyond bad. They were vicious. They were evil. They sacrificed their children. They gave them to Molech and to Baal and all kinds of heinous, wicked practices that they did. And so with that said, uh, certainly um, God was uh, passionate. He was compassionate in both his wrath and in his love. But then time expired. Why would he say even wipe out the children? because he knew what the children would be like, how the sins of the fathers would be passed on to the next generation. Remember, this is pre-Holy Spirit. This is before the Spirit of God had been set sent. And so remember in the Old Testament, Old Testament saints had a different relationship with the Holy Spirit than we do. There's only maybe max 500 Old Testament saints or prophets that had a unique relationship with the Spirit of God. The rest did not. Um, under the new covenant, because their iniquity would be forgiven, every New Testament saint can be indwelt by the Spirit. Even so, the Spirit of God had a unique relationship in this age, the church age, and in the coming tribulation that he did not have in the Old Testament. And so there were things that were allowed and, and so on. And so God said, wipe them out. That's not pro-life. That's, that's not anti-life. That's pro-life. It's much like capital punishment. The Roman Catholic Church says we're against aborting babies, at least officially, though obviously many of the people who march in these uh, pro-abortion rallies are Roman Catholics. But on paper, this is what the church says, and yet they're against capital punishment. What's the rationale behind that? The rationale behind that is that you have to protect life. But God doesn't protect life at all costs. When a man is a habitual murderer and there's evidence by two or three witnesses that he is the guilty party. Then God said, if he sheds man's blood, his blood shall be shed. That's a pro-life stance. That's God protecting life. That's God uh, recognizing that if there's no consequence for the murderer, he'll repeat the murder. Or uh, if the consequence is not severe enough, there will be others who will be encouraged to say, well, I may go to jail, but I won't have my life taken. And so one of the sad facts, of course, about uh, capital punishment in our own country is that sometimes it takes 10, 15, 20 years before a person can ever uh, face the punishment for his crime. And, And Solomon reminds us that if the punishment is not quickly executed, the law loses its punch. And so, again, these are pro-life stances. A little further on that question, I think there was a second part to it. And so um, let me uh, me look at that again. Yeah, so we've got the computer here. And so he also wanted to know about David's child dying. Well, again, um, God has consequences even for his people. Where did David's child go? Immediately into the presence of the Lord. 
he was in heaven. He didn't have to even deal with all the heartache and trouble that children go through in this life. He immediately went into the presence of the Lord, but God sent a message (laughs) at the beginning of wisdom is to fear God. All right, let's go to the next question. And by the way, if you have a question, you can call us, 843-525-1859, or you can email us directly. All right. Amelia from Beaufort, South Carolina. Pastor Carl, is there a good book you would recommend that explains the difference of what the Bible says and what Calvinism is? I'd love something to reference when I hear or read something from a Calvinist that I disagree with, but can't always remember the specifics of. Obviously, the Bible is the first place I go, but I'm looking for a book to thoroughly explain the differences of religion from the Bible with Scripture references. Thanks. Well, I would start you with uh, my series on the book of Romans. And so in Romans 9, 10, and 11, I deal in depth. Of course, you know, the only books that are going to do you any good are books that get you into the text of Scripture. And so uh, certainly if uh, there's a series that a pastor has done uh, dealing with these issues of Calvinism and he's bringing you into the text of Scripture and interacting with them, then that would be very, very um, useful. There's a brother. He's now in heaven. Um, His name is Dave Hunt, and he wrote a book in refutation of Calvinism. And by Calvinism, understand every person listening to me embraces certain aspects of Calvinism simply because Calvin was not a heretic. He believed in the deity of Christ and the substitutionary atonement and the bodily resurrection and the return of Christ from heaven. He had aspects of theology that weren't as completely reformed as, say, the Anabaptists, so he practiced infant baptism because he believed, as the Roman Catholic Church taught him, though he put a different spin on it, on replacement theology. Um, He uh, basically adopted a view of Romans 9, 10, 11 because he didn't see Israel there. He saw the church and he saw a personal election. So Dave Hunt wrote a powerful refutation. The title of the book is What Love Is This? Um, What Love Is This by Dave Hunt. And he does a great job with it. Uh, I forgot the subtitle of the book. Um, uh, Calvinism's Misrepresentation of God. Calvinism's Misrepresentation of God. So um, he's a good brother, now in heaven. Um, I I met him once because um, I have a radio ministry called Search the Scriptures, and we have an app and so forth, and we had been up and running for five years, and someone wrote me and said, hey, there's this guy out on the West Coast, and he has a new ministry called Search the Scriptures, and and so I called him, and he graciously changed the name of his ministry since he was just getting started. Anyway, let's go to the next question. All right, Pastor Carl, we have a live caller um, on line one, and... All right, we'll go to them, and we're glad to hear live callers each day. Go ahead, you're on the air. All right, Mr. Albert. Alberto, you are live with Pastor Carl. Yes, good morning, Dr. Carl. Yes, hey. hey. Sir. Um, the question is, how come when Christians, you know, they fell, committed sin, Christians are so quick to treat them, you know, ferociously, but when it comes to the sinner, you know, they they, they act like a little kitten. I know the Bible puts up the gospel with, you know, humbleness and, and love and all that, but what about, like, also, like, these Christians who, 
people drinking and smoking within a bad testimony, then the CEO of these big companies, they be going to the bench smiling from ear to ear. They be saying, well, these Christians sure are a blessing. So what do you think about that? So if I understood his question correctly, um, I think he was saying, Walter, that sometimes we are harder on an unbeliever in terms of the sins that he might manifest while rationalizing our own sins and being easier on Christians. That's what I understood. I would yeah. agree with that. Yes, and sir. So uh, with that said, uh, there's hypocrisy in everyone, but it's tragic when there's hypocrisy in the church. And certainly the standards for the believer are far higher for that of the unbeliever. When we look at the unbeliever, he acts the way he is because he's an unbeliever. He's not regenerate. A natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. And so as we come into this world physically alive but spiritually dead, natural men, um, we don't have the capacity to think and to embrace apart from the gospel, and even that is a pre-salvation work of the Spirit, but we don't have the capacity to embrace spiritual truth, asking a non-believer to embrace our worldview would be like, or to even understand it, would be like asking a blind man to judge a piece of artwork or a deaf man to evaluate a musical piece. He doesn't have the ability, but when you're born again, you receive the mind of Christ. That means you have a new capacity to think your thoughts after God's thoughts. And so there are certainly people who go around and they say they are believers, but they don't even begin to show the smallest inkling that they have the mind of Christ. And those are false believers. I was just dealing with a person who said, well, I don't know that it's really that bad that abortion would be wrong. Um, I don't know that it's really that bad to say that, you know, transgenderism would be wrong. Well, it is wrong. And if I could open the scripture to you, and show you passages, and you claim to be born again, and you can't embrace that simple, straightforward, we're not talking about even secondary or tertiary issues, but the moral dictates of Scripture, and you can't embrace that, it just means that you are lost. So, you know, Paul confronted Peter, the Bible says in Galatians 2, in his hypocrisy. So can Christians demonstrate hypocrisy? Of course they can. But if a person has a lifestyle of hypocrisy, it typically means they've never been born again. And just read Matthew chapter 23 in the uh, scathing, uh, scathing sermon that Jesus gave seven times over, woe to you hypocrites, woe to you hypocrites, woe to you hypocrites, who have one standard uh, for other people, but a different standard for themselves. And so there are hypocrites even in the church, because remember, the wheat and the tare will be mixed together until the time of the harvest. Um, But with that said, um, you know, we should be above reproach. It's a requirement for an elder in the local assembly, and there needs to be a lifestyle of change. We're not speaking of perfection, because none of us are perfect on this side of heaven. Uh, So it's not an issue of perfection, but it is an issue of a new direction, because if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Good question. Let's go to the next. Very well. Uh, Casey from Mount Shasta, California writes, Hi, Dr. Brogy. I am a new believer, 
a two-year-old Christian with still much to learn. My question is, when my desire to obey Titus 2.5, quote-unquote, working at home, conflicts with my husband's wishes for me to work, who do I obey? Because I am also supposed to be in submission to my husband and his vision for our family, I want to quit my job and be a full-time committed homeschooling mom to our four children. Hmm. But he wants me to keep working. I do only want to work two days a week, but they are long 10-hour days, and it disrupts the homeschool Bible time that I have set aside and normally would continue with my kids. Paul does say that women are to be workers at home, and when I examine my heart, I find a strong desire to be at home always. My husband is an unbeliever, and I worry that if I go against his wishes, it will push him away from Christ. Is this a situation where I can even go against my, what my husband wants and still be in submission to Christ? That's a that's a great question, and so we're grateful Casey has uh, emailed us here from Mount Shasta, California. Not sure where that is. You know where that is, Walter? Uh, I've, I've been a lot of places in, pa- in uh, California, Pastor Carl, but never been to Mount Shasta. In either case, l- let me begin with some broad parameters to start uh, in terms of submission, because sometimes submission is grossly distorted. In a broad sense, we're all, of course, called to be submissive to God, Uh, That's one of the marks of conversion. Uh, On the other hand, the Bible teaches that we're all to be submissive to one another. Submit to one another in the Lord, Paul will say in Ephesians 5, and he gives that as a mark of the Spirit-filled believer. Um, But with, with that said, the Scripture also teaches that wives are to be in submission to their husbands. And again, submission is often misunderstood Uh, People assume, because this is what the world says, that if you submit, you are admitting to inferiority. And and that, of course, is not true at all. The Bible teaches that we are equal. And there are some verses that even, I guess I would call them feminist Christians, use to try to defend a distorted view of submission. And one of the most popular that I've turned to here is Galatians 3.28. It says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And sadly, under this verse, there's all kinds of false teaching that has been put forth, everything from homosexual marriage to women pastors to equality of roles in marriage. So while God makes us equal, he doesn't make us identical. Um, God created the woman And he affirms in the New Testament what's illustrated in the Old Testament, that there are joint heirs with God. Uh, It's articulated and refined in the New Covenant. But with that said, while they are equal in worth, they are not equal in function. God created a woman to do a woman's role, and God's created a man to do a man's role. And we would admit, at least on some level, that there are some differences there. I can't breastfeed a newborn Only a woman can do that. But sadly, in utter rebellion, I suppose the peak of rebellion that we're seeing today are things like transgenderism and people who are obliterating the image of God. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. And he gave Adam a helper suitable. So while we're equal in spiritual status, we're not equal in function. So that's the broad parameters. Let me bring it down to your question. Certainly there are some non-negotiables, absolutely non-negotiable. 
if your husband asks you to do something that breaks a moral dictate of God, like uh, you can't go to church on Sunday, you would simply say, well, husband, I love you, but I'm going to go to church on Sunday. Uh, I am going to submit to the authority of God's word. Uh, Add to that, uh, there are other things. Sometimes husbands have asked their wives to participate in sexual perversion. They've asked them to view uh, unhealthy, wicked materials, to watch pornographic movies. There's no question, no debate. Um, What happens with a lot of families when they come to know Christ is they realize that they have been shaped by the world. Paul says part of growth, Romans 12, 2, is not to be conformed to this world. Uh, the Phillips paraphrase that was written in the 1950s says, don't allow the world to shape you into its mold, but be transformed how through the renewing of your mind. And so they begin to recognize, oh, wow, you know, I have a role that is high and holy, and it's to be a worker at home. And again, you've got all these feminist Christians. Some lady wrote me, and she didn't know what end was up. Um, she said, well, it just means you're, you're busy. No, it means in, you're a home worker. Oikos, ergos is two words brought together. Oikos is the word for home. Ergos is the word for work. There's an ampel uh, ergos. Ampel is the word for vine. A vine worker. Where does a vine worker work? In a vineyard. There's a geo ergos. Geo is the word for dirt or farm. Where does a farmer work? On a farm. And so a woman's principal place is to be as a worker at home. And that's not a diminished role. That's a great role. So people come to Christ and they say, hey, we're both working. We've made all these uh, moral obligations, payment on this, payment on that. We've developed our lifestyle on two incomes. They need to reevaluate. Add to that, you're dealing with a man who's an unbeliever. So this is what I would suggest. Number one, thank God that you are able at least to home educate your children and you're not giving them over to the indoctrinational um, processes that are being unfolded in the government school system, wicked things that are being taught to children even in grammar school. Yes, even in South Carolina as it came out, I had a lady who wrote me, Rick forwarded it to me. Um, she, with being very careful here not to give her name out or the specifics, but she's worked in the government school system in Beaufort County for a long time. And she said, yes, everything that you said is true, except it's far worse than what you've portrayed it. And, of course, even just recently, I spoke to a, a grandmother whose children are in the um, – Bluffton schools and all the books that are being pulled out of the, out of the libraries that parents are finding, you know, books that you don't want little children to be exposed to. We'd say they're pornographic in nature. And so you've got these people who are trying to pull them out. So thank God, one, that you can home educate your children. It's very, very tough. But your husband is lost, so you have to respect him. This is a little bit of a squishy issue maybe in some respects in that He's allowing you to work, but not full-time, but that would be your goal. So this is what I would suggest, three or four steps. Number one, I would say pray and fast, pray and fast, uh, maybe one meal a week, uh, maybe uh, when the kids are taking a nap or you give them quiet time, uh, you slip away into your closet and you get on your knees 
and on your face before God and A, ask for your husband's salvation and B, that he might allow you to homeschool, uh, to work at home full time. Secondly, you might try to seek employment uh, with a job that you can do from your home. So the Proverbs 31 woman is not some real estate agent gallivanting everywhere as the Christian feminists have falsely taught. She's a woman who from her home base is earning money. I have a daughter and uh, she has a little business she does from her home. She's taught the children about shipping, about uh, mathematics, about all kinds of things. It's called Matilda Jane. It was a little aggressive at first and she's cut back, um, but she does it all from her home. And and she's able to uh, add some uh, financial contribution uh, to their home. So there might be something that you could do. My wife made necklaces when I was in seminary, and there was like a leading department store chain in Dallas when they saw these wooden necklaces, which back then was very popular. They wanted everything she could make. And so, again, she was committed to her children, uh, but she did it on the side. A third thing I would suggest maybe is to take my financial course uh, because what we do in that course is we show, among other things, that everyone has a budget. It's either on paper or it's from the seat of their pants. It's either a good budget reflecting biblical principle or it's not a budget at all that reflects biblical counsel. So do that. Go through the budget. And we even have financial counselors who, if you send us the budget— even though you live in California, they'll see if they can find leakage in your budget. They might look at your, say, insurances, and you have a $500 deductible, and they say, well, you know, you might want to raise this to $2,000. Again, you're under your husband, uh, and this will save you this much a year. Or, you know, you're spending $150 a, a month on a cell phone. There's actually some, like, super cheap cell phone companies where you can pay, like, $25 a month. I have a son in Carolina who uses that cell phone company. Um, I would also suggest that you read a book by a friend of mine named Ethan Pope. And it's still in print. And the name of the book is There's There's No Place Like Home. There's No Place Like Home. And basically, he looks at it from the wife's side and from the woman's side about how do you come home? How do you... Uh, make that your goal. And you should tell your husband that you're praying for him, that you would be able to be such a efficient wife that he would see the work you're doing at home far more valuable and remind him from time to time what these children are being taught in the public school system. Uh, remind him how important it is. Because you see, sadly, and and I would say this even if your husband were converted, sadly, there are many Uh, believers who are basically saying, hey, look, I want you wife to work because I want a new boat. I want a bigger house. I want a newer car. I want you to help me make this payment or that payment. And sadly, um, that's where a lot of men are. And and I don't respect them, assuming they know what the scripture says, because a man is supposed to provide for his wife. He's supposed to be the worker. And if it means, you know, getting a, a second job to pull it off, then you do what you have to do. And I know these are challenging days as our country is being destroyed and inflation is going off the charts. And 
unless we stop spending money and and start doing some of the things that are driving uh, inflation, like you know we're we're no longer energy independent, we're we're paying incredible prices, and it's getting it's going to get even more dramatic here. I'm afraid uh, in a short time when uh, you know diesel fuel, which is at a premium, is going to become even more expensive. That's going to influence trucking and trains and everything and prices are going to keep going up and so there are people sadly in our government who wants to destroy the nation they want it to become socialistic and for that to truly happen in a broad-based way without taking decades all you need is the total economy to implode and that's i think where they're headed us leading us so anyway i hope that will get you started but i would say right now thank god that you can still home educate your children. You're working two days a week. Think about trying to maybe get another job if money is such an issue where you can um, earn some income from your home. And if there are debts that you are paying through your work, figure out a plan to get debt free. And to do that, you have to cut costs. And there are ways very often that costs can be cut that a lot of people haven't even thought about uh, but if it's important enough, you, you can make it happen. Let's go to the next question. All right, 843-525-1859. And we have Bob live on line one. Good morning, Bob. Uh, good morning, Pastor Rogi. Uh, my name is Bob. I, I have a, just a, a little question that's been bothering me for a long time, but I haven't called it. It's uh, Galatians chapter 1, 15 through uh, 17, about Basically, when the Apostle Paul was uh, first converted, that, that he went, uh, uh, that he went, of course, to preach among the Gentiles. He says, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go to Jerusalem, but to those who were apostles, to those who were apostles before me. I went to Arabia, and then again, and then again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter. Was he was he in Damascus for three years, or was he, was he in Arabia for three years? Yeah, yeah, no, and good question. I have a comment on the book, too, that I'll, I just can't let it slide. I, I've seen people on the local Savannah television stations with with copies of these books in front of them talking to the, to the viewers, of course. And uh, one of the commentators doing the show said, well, why don't you show some show us some pictures of the book? Read us some of the some paragraphs in the book. Well, so they said we can't do that. If, if you can't read those things to the adults or show pictures to the people, the viewers watching. Oh yes, yes, yeah, I got you. No, good, good. So let me let me jump in here. Yeah, it, it's really very very sad. You know, there were school board meetings in a number of places across America where concerned parents stood up and they started reading some of the material that they've got in these public school libraries and the school board members had to stop them. Why? Cause it was so filthy. Oh, but it's okay to have these things in the library. And so we see a former president, Barack Obama, you know, saying our, our country's in big trouble. We're going to lose democracy. You know, people are telling, you know, our kids what books we can read and what books we can't read. Hey, look, you know, this is a sad state of a nation that is being given over to sin. Uh, if we can stay it and slow it down some by voting today, we ought to. Now, to your question in Galatians, 
But when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem. What is he doing? Among other things, Paul is defending his ministry as an apostle. Paul had to put up with a lot of guff, and you especially pick it up when you read books like 1 Corinthians, who said that Paul was a Johnny-come-lately, that he was not a true apostle, he was a fake apostle. And Paul's argument was, no, I am a true apostle. I uh, received a call from the risen Christ. I received the gospel from the risen Christ. In other words, it was not the apostles that were evangelizing Paul. Christ appeared to him directly. And not only did he appear to him directly, just like the other apostles had a three-year apprenticeship, so to speak, uh, a three-year seminary degree as Christ walked on the earth, Paul had a a personal kind of seminary training with the Lord three years in Arabia. And then once again, he returns to Damascus. And then he ends up going to Jerusalem, where he becomes acquainted with Cephas, the apostle Peter, and he stayed with him 15 days. So um, Paul makes it clear that while he may not have started the same way, his apostleship was no less, no different, Um, and it shouldn't be diminished in any respect. All right, let's go to the next question. I think you have a live caller. Yes, sir, we do. And we have James. Good morning, James. You are live on the Bible line with Pastor Carl. Thank you. Good morning. Um, I had a question regarding uh, something you said during the sermon yesterday regarding about Catholics uh, can be saved even though they still believe in certain things that aren't scriptural, um, were you saying that they can, they don't have to believe to get saved, or they can be saved and continue on with the Catholic doctrine? Yeah, there's a difference there, so let me, let me respond to it. I'm saying that you can believe a lot of wrong things and still go to heaven. Let me give you an example from the Protestant side first. Suppose there's a brother in Christ who believes that, oh, no, I've been saved by grace alone through faith alone, totally by the finished death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that finished work. But uh, I think that it's fine that the infant baptism I have doesn't need to be in any way dismissed, and therefore I don't need believer's baptism. Could that person go to heaven? Yes. Are they wrong? I would say they're absolutely wrong. Absolutely wrong. Um, Someone already called uh, about a question concerning John Calvin. And, of course, John Calvin himself was not as Calvinistic as some of his followers. John Calvin didn't even believe in one point of uh, the tulip, so to speak, limited redemption, T-U-L-I-P, in terms of Calvinistic soteriology, their doctrine of salvation. He didn't believe in limited uh, atonement or a particular atonement that Christ died for uh, not just um, all people, but just for the elect. But there are believers in the United States who embrace that fully. Are they going to go to heaven? Yeah, they will go to heaven. Are they wrong? I think they're dead wrong. 
I think they're totally wrong. There are Protestant believers. It's now more prevalent in the United States who believe that uh, the church has replaced Israel, that the church is the new Israel. Are they wrong? I think they're dead wrong. Are they going to go to heaven? Yes, they can still go to heaven. Um, And so you can believe some wrong things as a Protestant. You can believe some wrong things as a Catholic and still go to heaven. So I had a couple that came down front in the first service on Sunday morning to make their confession of faith, and I had met with them in the office, and both from a Roman Catholic background. In fact, as it turns out, he went to Boston College a couple years before I did, and uh, in either case, they both received Christ in my office, and and we got into some questions and some issues. And for instance, within two minutes, we discussed this issue of the Virgin Mary. One, that she was not a perpetual virgin. The Bible teaches that she was kept a virgin just until she gave birth to Jesus. In fact, she had other children uh, that um, were born to her. Sons, their names are given for sons, sisters, plural, so that's, you know, at least six children, Jesus seven, maybe she had three or four, the brothers had three or four sisters, so she had multiple children, uh, and that was new to them. It was new to them that um, that Mary had normal marital relations, and then I echoed, and I said, do you know, too, that while the, the, the Roman church teaches that Mary was had never sinned? And, of course, uh, we turned to Luke 1, where I quoted Luke 1. I didn't turn there, where uh, Mary herself identifies herself as a sinner, that there's only one human who's ever walked on the planet who never sinned, and that was the Lord Jesus. So my point is, is you can believe a lot of wrong things and go to heaven. What was my point in saying that? Here's my point, is that what we tend to do sometimes as evangelicals is we go after non-conversion doctrines when dealing with Roman Catholics to say, hey, look, you know, you believe that the Pope is God's man on the earth. You believe that Mary was a perpetual virgin. You believe that Mary never sinned. You believe in transubstantiation, the real presence at the communion table and so forth. And we focus on those things to the exclusion of going to the gospel. Now, it might on occasion be helpful to focus on one of those things where sometimes you could maybe just point out that Mary had other children, and then you can begin to say, well, maybe if you're wrong on this doctrine, you could be wrong on something else over here. But the main focus is you want to get people into the kingdom through the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. Now, what typically happens when they're converted? Well, if they're brought under the teaching of the Word of God, their whole mindset changes. But does it change all at once? No. I remember the day I got converted as a good Catholic. Did I still believe in the real presence at the Lord's table? Absolutely. Did I believe Mary was a perpetual virgin? Absolutely. Uh, I, I believed a lot of wrong things, but I had come to faith. Did I believe my infant baptism? Yeah, when I first heard about baptism, my initial response was, well, I've been baptized. And someone said, but have you had post-conversion baptism? What's the difference? <laughs> and so when I started reading the Bible, I found out there was a difference. Was I still saved? Yes, even though I hadn't had believers' baptism or credo baptism. Credo meaning believers, creed is what you believe, versus patio or infant baptism. Yeah, I was still saved. So you can believe a lot of wrong things and go to heaven. 
but you cannot be wrong on justification by grace alone through faith alone. And that was the context of my comment, because we were looking at page 22 in the booklet, Would You Like to Know God as Your Friend? And I gave four common responses people will give to why God should let them into heaven. Some will just say, I don't know, which tells you they're lost because you have to know how to be saved before you can believe it. Some will give an answer of good works as the means to secure salvation. You know they're lost. Why? Because they haven't believed what God has asked them to believe. Then the third position, and this is where I brought in this comment, was the Roman Catholic position, and this is what the Protestant Reformation was about. They taught that faith in Christ plus the good works you do will secure salvation. So I said that they're on the Jesus plus plan, that Jesus didn't completely pay for sin, that your good works also help secure for you a place in heaven. That's why it's called the sin of presumption in Roman Catholicism to say that you know that you're saved. And that's a logical conclusion if you believe good works saved, because how would you ever know until you died whether you did enough good deeds to make up for the bad you've done or the good that you did, you did well enough. You would never know until you died. And so the doctrine of purgatory follows, and when you read Martin Luther's 95 theses or assertions that he nailed to the door at Wittenberg, the vast majority of them dealt with the doctrine of purgatory. And Luther's point was purgatory is not in the Bible, but it's a logical conclusion if you don't believe that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. And then the fourth equation was faith in Christ alone, meaning in the death, burial, and the resurrection, equals salvation plus good works. We don't say faith in Christ alone and the death, burial, and the resurrection equals salvation and good works don't matter. That's antinomianism, anti-against nomos law, that the law has no meaning for the Christian. Just the opposite. When you're born again, the grace of God that saves you teaches you to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live holy, that good works are the byproduct of salvation. So I would say that when a person meets Christ, a lot of wrong views they have, assuming they fall under the instruction of Scripture, those wrong views will begin to change. And what typically happens is those Roman Catholics end up leaving the church. Why? Because they see that the fundamental doctrine of salvation by grace alone through faith alone that one must believe to go to heaven is denied. And so, um, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. 843-525-1859. David D. from Orleans, Massachusetts writes, I watched a documentary on Jeffrey Dahmer, the serial killer from Milwaukee in the 80s and 90s. When he was interviewed, he said he was not insane and was always well aware of the heinous acts he was committing, Mm. but was was unable to stop. While in prison, he was baptized and surrendered himself to God. He was shortly after killed by a fellow inmate. I know we all sin and will be forgiven if we surrender to God and ask for forgiveness. I am wondering if God makes any distinction in the severity of sin. Me saying the Lord's name in vain seems like quite a lesser sin than raping, torturing, and eating people as Jeffrey Dahmer was convicted of. Yeah, he was a beast. Uh, if I remember, he, he took down 17 young boys and he cannibalized a number of them. Uh, could God save a Jeff, Jeffrey Dahmer? You see, one of the things that unbelievers 
throw up in our face is they say, well, your Christianity of salvation by grace alone basically says that you can live like the devil until the last moment, and then if you repent, you can go to heaven. Well, that needs to be qualified. Remember, God gives man a conscience, and God describes conscience in the Bible in different ways. And when Paul writes to um, in Titus, to, in Titus 1.15, he says, The pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their mind and their conscience is defi- are defiled. They profess to know God, he said, but by their deeds they deny him. That goes back to the last question. Good works are the fruit, the byproduct, not the means of salvation. And so you can have a conscience that is defiled. And the defiled conscience is a conscience that is uh, out of sync. It's also described as a callous conscience. When Paul in Ephesians speaks of unbelievers who are darkened in their understanding, they're excluded from the life of God, he said they have become callous. And so he speaks of a calloused conscience. If I have some calluses on the inside of my hand, and if I take a pin and poke where the callus is, I don't really feel anything because the fine sensitivity is lost. And sometimes people say, well, my conscience doesn't bother me. Well, your conscience may be defiled. It may be calloused. It may uh, lost its uh, sensitivity to the things of God. And the American Indians used to describe it this way. They would say, well, you know, my, my inside heart is like an arrowhead with a point on it. And when it turns and rotates, it hurts. But if it turns and rotates long enough, it doesn't hurt. They were actually echoing a biblical truth where your conscience can become callous and insensitive and not a practical guide. And so, again, Jeffrey Dahmer is walking down the road of sin, and he's getting deeper and deeper and deeper into sin, where things that I'm sure he thought he would never do in his earlier years, he began to do. And then the Bible teaches that you can develop a seared conscience. And we studied that recently in our series on end times doctrine that we're still looking at. We looked at 1 Timothy 4, where Paul talks about in the latter times, and this is the time frame that we would call the last of the last days, um, men would turn away from their faith, and he said they would be seared in their own conscience. You know, if you take a cattle and you sear the cattle, unlike a callus where it's not you can't feel anything, it's just not as a sensitive, a sear on a cattle kills all the nerve endings. There's no feeling at all. And a seared conscience is also described as a depraved mind in the book of Romans and in other places in the New Testament. Um, And Isaiah pictures such a person, woe to you who call good evil and evil good, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. These are people with a warped, defiled, seared conscience. And so when a person develops that, they can come to a point where they are unresponsive to the things of God. Now, God only knows. You know, we rejoice, say, in a Phil Robertson who, you know, came out of a testimony of illicit sex and drugs and rock and roll, and he finds the Lord, and, um, you know, and we love to hear his testimony, uh, but we hope maybe that an Adolf Hitler doesn't at the last minute get converted. 
Uh, but there are some people, some pretty vile people in Scripture that come to know the Lord. The example that comes to my mind is in Second uh, Chronicles, and it's Manasseh. And Manasseh was an evil king. Uh, he did not have a good track record. And in in Second Chronicles, let me just flip there very fast. In Second Chronicles 33, uh, we basically have what this guy was like. Um, and, and let me say, he's converted. He is converted. And so thus Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. Wow. Uh, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks bound with bronze chains and took him to Babylon. When he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Um, by the way, he's blinded, you'll learn in the parallel text. When he prayed to him, he was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Here's a guy who was converted who you wouldn't think would be converted. So was Jeffrey Dahmer converted? God only knows. I, I have some like real red flags because the guy who went to share the gospel with him was a Church of Christ guy, and he supposedly gave him the steps for conversion. He wrote him at first and, you know, repent, believe, confess, be baptized. And Dahmer said, well, I can't be baptized, therefore I can't be saved. And and this Church of Christ guy said, well, maybe we can get a baptismal in the prison because the prison he was in didn't have any such thing, and he was able to dialogue with prison officials, and they moved one of these portable baptisms into the prison, and they baptized him. Now, if he believed that Church of Christ doctrine, then he's, he's in hell. That's not conversion. Now, there's some other people who say they interacted with him, including Dr. Dobson. Only, only God knows. But can God save a person at the last minute? Potentially. Uh, but I certainly wouldn't presume on it. Because when you come under the convicting work of the Spirit of God, you should respond. You remember, no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. You don't draw yourself into the kingdom of God. God draws you, and Jesus warns about people who are unresponsive, such that in the first parable, in the first soil of the parable of the sowers, he says, the devil is given permission to snatch the seed, listen, that they might not believe and be saved. The writer of the Hebrews says, today is the day of salvation when you hear the good news, harden not your heart. And he illustrates it with Old Testament Israel who hardened their hearts and they missed the blessing of God. Well, he takes that and he applies it to salvation that when you say no to the God who says you need to be saved today, you've hardened your heart. And there can you can reach a point where you put the final callus where you say, no God, no God, no God, no God, no God. And God says, okay, I'll give you your wish. You're eternally lost. There is one deathbed conversion in all the Bible. Most of you know it. It's the thief on the cross. Um, we don't know, you know, I mean, I don't think he was a cannibal like Dahmer was, but that's God can save anyone from any kind of sin. But God gave us one deathbed conversion. I suppose that none will despair. If there's life, potentially there's hope. But he gave us only one 
so that no one would presume. No one can presume and say, well, I'll get my life right at the last minute and receive Jesus in the interim I'm going to live in my sin. No, you're going to callous your conscience. You're going to seal it where you can develop what the writer of the Hebrews calls an evil conscience, where you call good evil and evil good. And so I'm not convinced that Dahmer was, um, Jeffrey Dahmer was converted. I, I certainly hope he was. Maybe I'll be singing holy, holy, holy next to him in heaven, but only God knows. Uh, let's go to the next question. All right. Uh, Bob is asking for Pastor Carl's opinion on John Wolvord's book, Prophecy in the New Millennium. So Dr. John Walford was the president of Dallas Theological Seminary for 50 years. He was there in my first couple of years at Dallas Seminary. And um, I, I was just thrilled with Dr. Walford that I had the chance to study under him. He is probably the premier prophetic scholar of the 20th century. Uh, he lived into his early 90s, if I remember and um, Dr. Walford wrote more books, especially in the subject of eschatology, but not exclusively. He even took Lewis Sperry Chafer's Systematic Theology that was eight volumes, and he made it into two big fat volumes and brought it up to date from the 1930s until the 19, um, late 1980s, early 90s when it was republished. But he's a good Bible scholar, great Bible teacher, I think he would be very disappointed to see where Dallas Seminary has drifted um, from its moorings. That's not to say everyone at Dallas is bad or that all the students there are bad, but they've left their roots and their distinctives for which they were known. And they were distinctively known as developing Bible expositors. The thing I appreciated about Dr. Walford is he was so accessible even after he retired. In fact, I interviewed him on this station, WAGP, in the early years, and um, we did a live hookup from another place where we had our studio and dialogued with him over uh, a war that was going on in the Middle East at the time. I could pick up the phone and call him, and the amazing thing is is that if he was at his desk, he would answer, and I could ask him questions. And then there were times when during lunch hour, he would go sit in the lounge as a retired theologian and you could go and pick his mind on issues so he's a he's a great man of god and he's enjoying his reward in heaven well we're out of time the hour flew away but if you have questions uh feel free god willing next tuesday we'll be here or you can email us at tbl for the bible wide at wagp.net and when your question is answered We will email you back with a file to say it was answered today and you can listen to it even if you're not available during this hour. God bless you. Come tomorrow night, Community Bible Church. We're going to talk about how to walk in the Spirit.